Hey there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one blessed page of Talmud each day. And today's pages, Sotah 32 and 33, are very, very specific about, well, blessings and curses. How should we curse someone? Can we do so in Aramaic, the colloquial language in the time of the Talmud? Or is an invocation of divine damnation admissible only if stated in the sacred tongue, Hebrew? Amidst this discussion, we hear one delightful little story about a curse directed at the most powerful man in the world, the Roman Emperor. Have a listen. And there was another incident involving Shimon HaTzadik, who heard a divine voice emerging from the house of the Holy of Holies that was saying, the decree that the enemy intended to bring against the temple is annulled, and Gas Calgas, or the Emperor Caligula, has been killed and his decrees have been voided. And people wrote down that time that the divine voice was heard and later found that it matched exactly the moment that Caligula was killed. The story is magical. Caligula was evil. He plotted against the Jews, and the righteous Shimon, the high priest, heard a divine voice promise that the man who had conspired against the temple was now dead, paid for his sins with his life. And that voice was heard at the exact moment in which the divine decree was carried out. But there is another story even more magical than that, which is also widely discussed in the Talmud. A story of God striking down another Roman emperor, Titus, for his evil decrees against the Jews. And to tell us this story, which really is incredible and incredibly gross and really incredibly moving, I have the pleasure of turning over today's episode to my friend, Dr. Stuart Halpern, who is now hosting a new podcast of his own. It's called Why You Ideas, and it brings us conversations with the best and brightest teachers at Yeshiva University, the Hogwarts of the Jewish people. You're about to hear the podcast's first episode, Hot Off the Presses, featuring a conversation between Stu and Professor of Jewish History, Dr. Stephen Fine. It's a wild, wild, wild chat about how a little gnat, that's right, that annoying little insect, was sent by God to torment and finally to kill the evil Titus. And about why we Jews continue to delight with this story, even now, millennia later. And about how this story teaches us to think about the nature of divine blessings and curses and what they still mean to us. If you like what you hear, I hope you go ahead and, like me, subscribe to the Why You Ideas podcast as well. Have a listen. Bugs are usually thought of as an annoyance. But to you, Dr. Fine, bugs, or a particular bug, a gnat, is actually a portal of entry into scholarly inquiry. Tell us about your current fascination with a gnat. Well, you know, insects have been an important part of human culture since the beginning. In fact, uh, Genesis Rabbah, 5th century Midrash, asked the question, why did God ever create mosquitoes or gnats? Um, and every culture is asset. There's books out there about uh, the insect in this culture and the insect in that culture. But this particular insect, and there's only one of them, 
has flown through Jewish history from the third century uh, until yesterday. In fact, there's a story that goes something like this. Titus, who destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, of course, and is called in Jewish tradition the evil one, Harasha, when he entered the Holy of Holies of the temple in Jerusalem, pierced the curtain, the parochet, and cursed and blasphemed. When he returned, a single gnat or mosquito, a yatush, entered his nostril and was gouging out his brain. When he died, they cut open his brain and they found something like a bird weighing two pounds. That's one way to get rid of the destroyer of Jerusalem. But why an insect? Why a gnat? Well, think about it. Jews after the second revolt against Rome of 132 to 135, which came as Hadrian tried to rebuild Jerusalem and succeeded in rebuilding Jerusalem as a pagan city, as Aelia Capitolina, were a pretty downtrodden community. The rabbis were in a quandary. Here's the problem. According to standard Jewish theology, and it's not just rabbis, if you do something wrong, God is going to get you immediately. We find this through biblical literature. We find this through classical literature. We find it in early Christian literature. We find it among rabbis. You do something wrong, you're Antiochus. You do all the awful things that Antiochus did in Jerusalem in the time of the Maccabees. You blaspheme God. God is going to infest you with worms. You are going to have an awful urological disease, and you are going to die in utter pain. The same thing happened to Herod Agrippus in the New Testament. That's what happens to bad guys. That's what you expect is going to happen to bad guys. The problem is that Mr. Titus destroyed Jerusalem, had a triumphal parade that's commemorated, of course, in the Arch of Titus. Ten years after destroying Jerusalem, he becomes the emperor of Rome. And he's doing a really good job as emperor of Rome. And then he drops dead after two years. Now, some Jews looked at the fact that Pompeii was destroyed in the year that uh, Titus became emperor as divine recompense for how these Romans had behaved. But in general, rabbis don't talk about that. They don't talk about all of the difficulties in Rome under Titus. Rather, they ask the question, how did this guy survive all that time? Now, Romans asked the question differently. They said, how did he die after only two years? He was doing such a good job of rebuilding Pompeii. There are plaques. We have lots of inscriptions that say so. He was doing a pretty good job as emperor. What happened? Oh, maybe his brother Domitian had him killed. And there are lots of other versions that Romans tell about ways that Titus could have died. It's sort of the who killed Kennedy of its moment, right? Um, who did it? Where did they do it? How did they do it? In what context did they do it? And rabbis came in and said, oh, we know what happened. Titus was punished by God for destroying Jerusalem. And it took God a long time to do it. 
God let his sins build and build and build until finally, when he finally reached a point where killing him would be noticed by all, the gnat which went into his nose at the moment that he did his sin chomped and chomped and chomped and chomped and made him crazy. Now, what is this? It's a delayed action bomb. It's a time bomb, right, that God planted using the smallest, least significant creature in the world in order to do it. Now, this story gets bigger and bigger and bigger from version to version to version. I can tell you it's one of the most popular stories in all of rabbinic literature. It's one of the most popular and ill-considered stories in modern Jewish literature. Agnon talks about it. Cynthia Ozick talks about it. All these people are fascinated by Titus and his gnat and how God got him. And, And you can understand why. Because... Here we have the smallest of all peoples, as the Torah calls the Jewish people, and the smallest of all creatures, the creature doing God's will, just sort of waiting, the promise being that God doesn't give up, God doesn't leave the Jews abandoned, God, despite how it looks, will find a way. Now, the story gets better. And so in later versions, oh, he curses God on the way home to Rome, and he goes to a bathhouse, and that's where the gnat slips in, which makes sense because bathhouses, like like public bathrooms, were filthy places, right? And so the gnat slips into his brain at one of those moments when he's vulnerable in a bathhouse, right? He's naked, he's in the hot water, there's lots of filth. Lots of people got sick in Roman bathhouses. So here he is in the bathhouse, he comes out, he comes out of the bathhouse, and as the story continues, he does everything he can with this awful sound in his head that's beginning to beat and beat and beat. And according to the next versions of the story, because there are a lot of them, they brought surgeons who did an autopsy after trying to relieve the pressure in his brain, because Romans knew how to do that kind of surgery. And by the way, they even found tools for how to do it in Pompeii. Um, and, and the Mishnah mentions it too. In other words, it's a well-known kind of surgery. They tried to relieve the pressure in his brain. It didn't work. He dies, right? So they do an autopsy, and out comes this creature, and then there's the best part. If you wonder what happened to Titus, you notice the story I told you was rather elegant. It's only 30 words in Hebrew. The one that I just expanded into is hundreds and hundreds of words with word plays and sound plays and, and wonderful behaviors that you'd expect of a meme on a stage. But in the end, a well-known rabbi says, I was in Rome and I saw it. And the brain was on one side of a scale and the bird was on the other. The bird was on one side of a scale and we waited and it was two liters in size before it flew away. Now, what's the point of the rabbi? What are the rabbis doing? At the end of the story, right? Right. After all, what's he doing there? This is rabbis claiming that they know, they control, they're involved in the death of Titus. They have a way to fight. They might not have swords, but they have their pens. They have their quills. They're fighting against power with this story. 
they're not just fighting against power. They don't think they're fighting with power. They think the way the story is written, I don't know what anybody thinks. Somebody is sitting in a Beit Knesset, someone's sitting in a synagogue, someone's sitting in a, by a hearth telling this story with all the kind of drama that I'm using, plus about 10 times, right? Someone who's really telling this story with all the kids' eyes open up wide, right? At the campfire. At the campfire, or in the synagogue, or over lunch. And there's so many different versions of the story that it could have been told in all of those and then they say, you know, folks, we all know what happened to Titus, but you know what the proof is? Someone like me, a famous rabbi, was there, and he verifies that this is what happened. Now, we can say that this is rabbis fighting with their pens, but remember, Romans are telling these stories about Titus as well. What happened to him? Was he killed by a sea hare that was put into his food, and that's considered poisonous? What killed him? Did, did, did Domitian leave him outside in the cold on a cold night when he was sick? And he Ro- looked different, right? Your research has shown maybe he had some sort of physical, uh, uh, in a large forehead of some sort. Uh, look, here's the deal. If anybody, and I know we don't have pictures, if anybody is, uh, is uh, looking at your computer, look and see what Julius Caesar looks like, what Augustus Caesar looks like, even what Caligula or Tiberius look like, and then look at Vespasian and Titus and Domitian. Vespasian wanted to look like the 50-year-old everyman of Rome, intentionally different from those idealized emperors before him. His son, Titus, has the biggest, most protruding forehead. Hmm. Now, in Roman culture, big, bald foreheads, like mine, are a reason to laugh at somebody. They laughed at Julius Caesar because he had one hair and he kept stretching it all around his head. Um, They laughed at anybody who looked funny. In fact, in Pompeii, they found a drawing on a wall of a guy and uh, has his name on it. I am, I forget his name, I think it's Rufus. Um, And below it, there's a picture of him, a cartoon with a wreath on his head, with his bald head, with a protruding forehead and a big nose. And it's a conscious caricature. For Romans, if you look funny, you look funny. And it's considered humor to them, which, you know, in our culture, it was until recently as well. Somebody's is funny looking, right? You even hear it in the language. Mm-hmm. And so I could well imagine somebody sitting with an image of Titus. And there were a lot of images of Titus in the Galilee, in the, even into the 5th century, Why? Because after the revolt against Rome, there were oodles of coins printed by every city in the region, and they often showed Titus or Domitian. Remember, Judah has been captured, Judea Copta, and they want the Jews to remember it. The tokens of the defeat are everywhere, and the coins continue in circulation for centuries. Statues were less common, but they were out there. But he was only emperor for two years. So they saw this visage. They, they saw clearly him. knew what this guy looked like. With okay? his protruding forehead. With his protruding forehead. They clearly knew what he looked like. Okay? Now, does that mean that they definitely were looking at coins and thinking, oh, you see that? Look at that funny whore forehead. It means, ah, oh, I can tell you why he has a funny forehead. You know there's a gnat in there. I don't know that. But I can tell you that in terms of how Romans dealt with humor, that's perfectly possible. After all, I have the picture of the guy on the wall at Pompeii, and someone looked at it and said, ha, ha, it's Rufus. And particularly the oppressed Jews might have dealt with power that way too, through laughter, through mockery. The way you deal with 
this situation is through mockery. That's for all cultures. The hidden transcript of the oppressed is humor about the oppressor, whether it be slaves in the South or whether it be any other group that's feeling the sense of being oppressed. Humor is a way of surviving and maintaining dignity. Titus and the Gnat, which began as very serious business, over time continued as serious business. But in later periods, the serious business was, ha, 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 look at that idiot, burlesque, make fun of him. But don't ever think that as they were making fun of him, they were actually not hurt, not afraid, not dealing with a problem that was irresolvable. Into the modern period, when people like Shiognon and Cynthia Ozick came along, and they too dealt with the biggest problems in our world. And what metaphor did they choose? Titus and his gnat. But that's going to have to wait for my new book. Can't wait. I'm sure the buzz is already building. It was the smallest of flies that reminds us that the fight for liberation lies potentially in laughter. Thank you so much, Dr. Fine. It's gnawing at me to this day. This has been Take One. If you enjoy the show, and I hope that you do, please go and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts and get your Take One t-shirts and mugs at tabletstudios.com. Each week, we will be releasing new episodes Monday through Friday, covering the entire weekly portion of Daf Yomi. Take One is a Tablet Studios production. The show is hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz, and is produced and edited by Daron Risquet, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team also includes Stephanie Butnick, Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Courtney Hazlett, Mark Oppenheimer, and Tanya Singer. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash take one. Subscribe to our newsletter at tabletm.ag slash take one newsletter or email us at take one at tabletmag.com. You can find us on Twitter at take one dafyomi or join our Facebook group by searching for Take One Podcast. I hope we have made your day a little more Talmudic.